you have a Bible with you, we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. Let me start by reading that. Hear the word of God. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray as we um, begin this series on race and ethnicity and mission that you would come and you would especially bring conviction of sin where there is sin. I pray that you would bring encouragement where there needs to be encouragement. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen and amen. Well, if you follow our social media at all, you know that the title of this sermon, or the title of this whole series is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? And I'm guessing if you're under 50, maybe under 60, you're wondering, where did that come from? Okay, so the question is, today we'll begin with, have you seen the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? came out in 1964, I believe, and it was about an interracial marriage. And it's more than about an interracial marriage. It was, it was filmed, when it was filmed, interracial marriage was illegal in 17 states in the United States. And so it was pretty brave for them to even film it because it might not even have ever shown. Six months before it went to, to market, the, the Supreme Court struck down the, the ban against, illegal, against interracial marriages and the movie showed and it was very popular and it was it's an interesting movie because basically it's about a black man and a white woman the black man is a world famous doctor he works for the the world health organization i wish we'd had him now he was such a great doctor and he meets a, a young woman his name is john prentice her name is joanna drayton in the movie they meet at a conference and they fall madly in love her parents happen to be wealthy stereotypically liberal san franciscans he owns a newspaper and they drop in on her parents thinking that my parents will be so excited because our parents are liberal and they're progressive and they're always they would love something like this and he comes in and introduces himself and it's like skirt <laughs> Not so fast. It was great to talk about interracial marriage, and it was great to talk about being against racism, but let me think about it for a minute, now that it's right in front of my face. And then, of course, they had invited his parents to dinner, right? Guess who's coming to dinner? Well, it's actually his parents are coming over tonight, mom and dad. His parents are a little bit more conservative, actually, and they are also not excited about the marriage. And even it gets down to, to the maid, 
I think that it's Isabel Sanford is the maid. She played Wheezy on the Jeffersons, if you're, if you're familiar with that. And she pulls the, the doctor aside and just scolds him for getting up out of his class. That she thinks he shouldn't even try to enter this, 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 this sort of highfalutin white folks world. It's crazy. And, and what's interesting, the reason that I picked this for our title is not because it's a paradigm of race relations. It's a great movie. But it's because the whole movie, in some sense, is one awkward conversation after another. I mean, it really is. It's, it's the, 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 the white daughter talking to her white mother, and then it's the white daughter talking to her white father, and then it's her black fiancé talking to the white father, and then it's the white daughter talking to the black father. It's just like all these conversations, and then they get around the dinner table. Hello. It's big. And so... We, for the next 15 weeks, are going to have a series of what will sometimes be awkward conversations. We need to talk about race, we need to talk about ethnicity, and we need to talk about how it all ties in to mission. Now the question is, some of you are going to be asking, why? Because as soon as I announced this, by the way, some people started to ask, why? Why do we need to talk about race now? I thought I'd spend the first couple minutes, since this is an introductory sermon, talking about why I thought it was important that we talk about race and ethnicity now, at this point in history. When I got to, to our church, when this church started, technically, it came from a church that started in 1893, but technically, since we've been here, it's been here about 35 years or so, or plus or minus, and during that time, when the church first bought this property and came here, the neighborhood was predominantly white. It was just a white neighborhood. White church, great. Over the years, now in, in 2021, we just did a demographic study as the session did, and our neighborhood now, according to 2018 data, that's the latest they had, is 57% minority. Not 1% or 2% or 3%, it's 57% minority. I would guess it's actually higher than that. Many of you have heard me say before that the Kent School District has 138 languages in it. it that, that blows my mind. I heard, I heard on the radio one time a, a pastor being interviewed because someone had found out that his church was in an area with 30 languages and they just couldn't believe that. I was like, Psh, you get nothing on us. So we're, we are in an area that is racially and ethnically diverse. And if we as a church are going to bless them bless the people around us, we need to actually have some sense of what the Bible says about race and ethnicity. We can't just act like it's not an issue, because it is. So, th so that's one. It's just the place where we find ourselves. If the vision mission of our church is to bless those around us, whether they're Christians or not, there are a lot of people of color around us. There are a lot of different races. There are a lot of different languages. And I hope this will be the beginning of us thinking intentionally about how we bless our neighbors. So that's one. The second thing, the reason is about three years ago, I was working on my doctor of ministry project. And, you know, doctor of ministry, you basically, it was four years long and you have to do this big thesis at the end. And, it, and it's something practical, typically. And I had this great idea, at least at the time, it seemed like a great idea, is that one of the, the, the preacher for the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening was a guy named George Whitfield. Many have heard of George Whitfield. George Whitfield apparently could preach to 10 or 20,000 people at a time in an open field and not even need a microphone. 
George Whitfield was actually such a great preacher. He used to be an, he was an actor before he became a preacher. And so he was such a great preacher, he was so animated that George Whitfield actually is credited with the beginning of the African American church in the United States because slaveholders used to take their slaves to church, to Presbyterian churches, Episcopal churches, and the slaves would didn't get it. And it was just emotionally. It was like, wah, 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 wah. There was no emotion. There was no sort of engagement with the heart. And they heard Whitfield preach. And he was so animated. And he was so dramatic. And he was so lively. And many of the, the, the slaves thought, we can do that. And so they began to start their own churches. That's an issue. I'll tell you why in a minute. You see, so you look at George Whitfield. And you say, man, one of the heroes of, of the Great Awakening The problem is, he was a hero of the Great Awakening if you were a white Bible-believing Christian. If you were a black Bible-believing Christian, while he might have motivated you to start your own church, he was sort of the villain. That's one of the things I found out during my research. You see, I dove in. I thought, man, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look at George Whitfield and see how he preached and our modern-day situation, and maybe we can grow churches and start churches that way. And as I got into it, I realized that George Whitfield was a slaveholder. Someone gave him slaves, and, and instead of saying, whoa, no, 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 I can't accept those, he said, wow, that'll be really helpful on my plantation that someone else gave me. And I remember looking at that and just being, like, sick. I'm not going to glorify him. I didn't hate him. I didn't think like everything he said was untrue. It just sort of soiled it for me. And so I didn't. Now, fortunately for you, maybe I ended up doing my thesis on preventing church shootings. So good. (laughs) An even bigger example, though, when I was in seminary, there was a guy who you heard all around. The, the hero of the seminary that I went to and Samuel went to was a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Have you ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? Right? Jonathan Edwards wrote volumes and volumes of sermons. He wrote volumes and volumes of theology. And I can remember, and in, when I was in seminary, he was the man. I mean, there was one professor who said, anyone who will read all the works of Jonathan Edwards in a year, I will give him a copy of it. You know, it was like always on our mind. And I can remember in seminary thinking, how in the world does this guy have time to write sermons that would take, if you read it out loud, it would take you two hours to read it. He's doing that every every week several times. He's writing sermons. He's writing books. He's writing theology. He was the president of Princeton College. He had like nine kids. How in the world does he get the time to do all these things? Well, you know what? When you have slaves running your household, you've got plenty of time. Jonathan Edwards was not only a slaveholder. Jonathan Edwards was a slave apologist. In other words, we oftentimes say these are just men of their times, and sometimes they were. But abolitionists confronted Jonathan Edwards over and over again and said, this is wrong, this is inconsistent with the gospel that you are preaching, and he wrote apologetics in favor of it. Now, does that mean the theology that he wrote is untrue? No. No. But can you see how in, in the white church you read that, and if you don't know the story, you think, man, he's a hero. Look at all this great theology. But if you were a black Christian, can you see how that would be a little bit tainted for you? It was for me. Now I use his volumes as a bookstop <laughs> in my office at a doorstop. It, 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 it was tough to hear that. 
But if we are going to be honest, we have to engage that kind of thing. So that was, that was two things. So he, I, I realized that some of the heroes, white evangelical or white Bible-believing church, were, were heroes to that church, but they were actually villains to the, to the black church. I mean, you, re, you realize the, the African-American churches in the United States, a lot of them started because their white brothers and sisters would not let them even go into the front of the church to pray. And they pulled aside, like the African Methodist Episcopal, pulled back and said, we need to have a church where we can actually worship Christ. And, our, they, and they used the language, our brothers and sisters won't let us. So all these arguments about whether or not America is, it has system, systematic racism or that kind of thing, or America is a racist country, that's sort of irrelevant in some ways to this discussion because there is definitely a legacy that the church needs to at least address. And at least admit. So that's the second thing. The third thing is basically um, the death of George Floyd. Remember, the death of George Floyd was almost a year ago exactly. It was May 25th. And during the death of, of, after the death of George Floyd, if you remember, um, social media went wild. And after the death of George Floyd, that was like for pastors, um, I don't even know how to explain how difficult that was. Because we're right, we're in the midst of COVID, and in the midst of COVID, um, this isn't to complain. I'm just sort of being objective. In the midst of COVID, you basically had two groups of people: one group of people who were calling you cowards, and one group of people who were calling you murderers. If you were a pastor, right? You were a coward if you didn't come to church and you didn't wear ma- and you wore masks, and you were a murderer if you came to church and you didn't wear masks. And so you're trying to figure out how do I do this sort of immediate middle way? And in the middle of all that, George Floyd happened. And suddenly, we started getting emails saying, you need, to, you need to make a statement about George Floyd. You need to make a statement about racism. You need to do more about this. We need to deal with racism. Tommy, you didn't put the black box on your Instagram on the certain day that you knew. I can't even remember my own birthday. And yet, all these things were coming in. They just were, they, they just were piling on. And then what's interesting is our, is our session decided... Um, that we needed to make a statement on the issue of racism. If you're new here, we, we not only have black members, we have black elders, and we talked about it, and we said we need to make a statement here. Not a statement necessarily in, tr- in favor of George Floyd. We need to talk about what the gospel says. And so I made a video about the George Floyd thing, and basically the substance of the video in Reader's Digest form was this, that we unequivocally condemn racism in any form whatsoever. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is inconsistent with racism. You would think that would be a pretty clear statement, correct? It wasn't, apparently. Because then I started getting emails that were saying, oh, so now Pastor Tommy's going woke. Samuel's woke. Right? Oh, I guess next thing you're going to do is start teaching critical race theory in church, right? If you've got a problem with me saying racism is inconsistent with the gospel, you don't understand the gospel at all. Like, see me after. I would love to explain it to you. So that was on one side. On the other side, of course, you had people saying, you didn't go far enough. You didn't, you know, you didn't say this, and you didn't say that, and you didn't say that. And I thought, you know what I'd need to do? I'll say something. I'll say something for 15 weeks. I'll talk about it and talk about it and talk about it until you're sick of hearing it. That's why we are doing this series on race and ethnicity. 
Okay, so that's <laughs> that's what we're beginning. So now now right about that time, interestingly enough, I started reading a book. Right, we were cleaning out the library. We did clean out the library to to set it up sort of as a recording studio. And at the time, I found a book that was called From Every People and Nation by a guy named Daniel Hayes. And I thought, oh, that looks interesting. And I started to read it. And as I read it, I had this, this wild existential experience. I explained it to my wife like this. I'm reading this book on race and ethnicity. And when, when I was in the Army, I was in a special unit. And I went, at some point, I went to Halo School. That's high-altitude, low-opening parachutists, right? And so we would jump anywhere from 10,000 feet to 25,000 feet in the air, and anywhere above 10,000 feet, you need to use oxygen. And one of the problems is, is in, in that sort of around 10,000 feet, sometimes you need it, sometimes you don't, so you need to know. So they take you at some point and put you in a hyperbaric chamber and remove all the oxygen. And everyone has different symptoms of hypoxia, right? Low, low blood and the low oxygen in the blood. And for me, my particular symptoms were that everything became black and white, like a black and white television, like I love Lucy. And so the reason they do that is I knew when I was in an airplane at 10,000 feet or above, if things started looking black and white, I needed to take a hit of oxygen. Now, what's amazing is when I took a hit of oxygen, even as I was sucking the oxygen in, whoosh, the world would, begin, would become all colorful again. And I told my wife, that is the experience I had reading this book on race and ethnicity. That in some sense, I'd almost seen the world in black and white, and as I read this book, I suddenly saw the world in all this glorious color, that all this glorious diversity. That's not wokeness. That's the way that God created it. That the, the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will not only be in heaven, but people in every tribe, tongue, and nation actually are part of the gospel story from the very beginning. From the very beginning, there were Africans who were integral to the story that God was weaving. From the very beginning, there were, there were Middle Easterners, there were people who were white. You know, when you hear about the Galatians, all these people. And I thought, man, i got to talk about this. I need to encourage the people of color in my church, which is every single one of you. Every single one of you are some color. And that's not to say that black lives don't matter or to say that all lives do matter. I, what I'm saying is that because of the gospel and what God has done, there is such a more glorious vision that we should have than just trying to be this or be that. We can be totally different. And so how are we going to do it? We're going to, we're going to do this by looking at the subject of race and ethnicity and mission. Guess what? Through the lens, what do you think I'm going to say? Through the lens of the gospel. Only through the lens of the gospel can you have that kind of vision. There are several worldviews now that are, that are competing to get your attention. They're on the news all the time. And here's the problem with all of those worldviews compared to the gospel. What those worldviews do is they seek to use guilt and shame in order to somehow achieve what only the gospel can achieve. If you seek to, make some, to keep someone from being a racist by using guilt and by using shame, what you will accomplish probably is outward conformity so people will stay off their back, but inward hostility. They'll actually be more racist than they were before. What it ends up being is it ends up being, being about revenge instead of restoration. And the goal of the gospel is restoration. 
You see, what the gospel does is the gospel points out our sin much more, much, much, in much more of an elaborate fashion than any person could or any worldview could or any book could. But what the gospel does, when the gospel points out our sin, it produces sorrow that leads to what? Repentance. Lead to outward conformity and hostility, and the gospel produces sorrow that leads to repentance. Sorrow means you you realize something that you were wrong about that you need to change. That's repentance. The other thing that the gospel provides that no one else provides is forgiveness. If there's no way in your worldview for you to forgive someone else, then you are never going to be restored, and you are never going to experience joy. The gospel is the only thing that can do that. So with all of that said, we're going to look, talk about the gospel this morning. One thing I want to remind you of, because I, as soon as I started, I said I was going to start preaching about uh, race and ethnicity, I started to get a ton of people saying, oh, you need to read this, you need to read that, you need to read this, and they're sending me everything, and it's like if I printed them out, it would probably be a foot high. So if you remember, if you've ever taken a class from me, I had this thing called the Burger King Principle, which I got from my teacher, Richard Pratt. I don't have time to explain to you why he called it the Burger King principle, but it basically says this. It says you can't say everything anytime you say something, otherwise you end up saying nothing at all. Okay, you can't say everything anytime you say something, otherwise you end up saying nothing at all. Now, why do I tell you that? It's because any given sermon, I'm going to have to necessarily leave a lot of other stuff out, but hopefully we'll cover it in the course of 15 weeks. So this morning, we're going to look at three things quickly. We're going to look at a promised future. We're going to look at a powerful gospel. And we're going to look at an eschatological challenge. So let me read to you. um, Actually, the last verse of chapter 6. The last verse of chapter 6 says, For the great day of the wrath has come. Who can stand? See, we looked at, if you want a whole series on the book of Revelation, you can find it on our website. I did it in 2012, I believe. And in chapter 6 in the book of Revelation is all about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and they're going throughout the earth, and they're bringing judgment upon the earth. And this angel shouts out, the, the judgment is coming, the wrath of God is coming. Who can stand? Who can stand it when God's wrath comes? And chapter 7 answers that question. Here's who can stand. And chapter 7 begins, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. See, in verse 7-4, he says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Remember, in the book of Revelation, what often happens is John hears one thing, and then he'll turn around and he'll see something else. And so who can stand? And what he hears is 144,000 from every tribe and tongue, or 144,000 from the tribes of Israel can stand. And he hears this number, 144,000. Well, without taking the time to explain it all, 12 is a perfect number in the Bible, and 144,000 is one of these perfect numbers. And so basically it stands for the the perfect number of all of the redeemed of God. In other words, all of the the people who will ever be saved, it stands for them. It's it's just the complete number. And John looks to see what is the complete number of 
those people look like. And he turns, and what he sees is a multitude that no one can number. He sees, he, he act, when he looks at it, he sees a multitude that no one can number from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. He doesn't look around and say, I looked around and I saw an infinite number of black people. Or he doesn't turn around and say, I saw more, a multitude, a myriad upon myriad of white people. He says, I saw myriad upon myriad of people from every nation, from every tongue, and every tribe. The reason that this, ser- this particular sermon is titled Beginning with the End in Mind is because that is where all of creation is heading. All of creation is heading to a place where you have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are all part of one family, by the way. Can't choose your family, unfortunately, right? From one family standing around the throne, worshiping God. And you know what? That shouldn't surprise us at all. At least if you've read the Bible. You see, if you've read the Bible, all the way back to the beginning, that's what God promised from the very beginning. Remember when he called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? He didn't say, Abraham, I'm calling you to make you a blessing to the Jews. Abraham wasn't Jewish. Abraham was a Gentile. He called it, God called it a Gentile and said, I'm calling you to make you a blessing to all the families of the earth or all the people groups of the earth is another way to tr- translate it. And so then remember in Genesis chapter 15, God came again to Abraham and said, Abraham, remember I told you you're going to bless all the families of the earth where well, your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. Genesis chapter 17, God changes the name to Abraham. Why? He says, because I'm going to make you a father of many nations. In those many nations, Abraham will be blessed in you. Not just one nation, Israel. Not just one race, white, black, Asian, name it. All peoples will be blessed in you. And the, the, the differentiation, of course, is whether they have faith in the one who came through Abraham. That is Jesus himself. Now, the, the interesting thing is when you talk about vision, right? I, I used to teach church planters quite a bit. And, you know, whenever you're getting to talk about church planting or you talk about church revitalization, everyone says, what's the vision for this church? And vision is most often uh, determined or defined as what is your preferred future, right? So vision equals preferred future. And what they mean is, well, our church is at point A and we would prefer to be at point B. And so what do we do to get there? Well, that's a, that's a fine way to do things. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not how the Bible works. The Bible doesn't give us a preferred future. The Bible actually gives us a promised future. And the promised future for those who have trusted Jesus is a family that is composed of people from every people, nation, tribe, tongue, people group, name it. That's the, the, the promised future for God's church. Now the question is whether you're going to facilitate that or fight against it. Whether you're going to make that easier or whether you're going to make it harder. Because either way, it's going to happen. Now how does God facilitate that state of affairs? Well, God facilitates the state of affairs for every people, tongue, tribe, and nation with a powerful gospel. That's what we'll look at next. Notice verse 9. He says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So here you have it. You have people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, 
And notice what they are doing. They are standing around the throne. They're not cringing. They're not cowering. They're not, you 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 don't get the sense that some people are close and some people are far. It's just sort of they are there and they are standing. And the, the reason that they are standing is because of grace. Did you notice what they were not singing? They, they were not singing and they were not shouting, look at me, look how awesome I am. Look at all the great things that I've done. Look at how moral I was during my life on earth. I'm awesome. No, you're not. What they say is that they are there because salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Because salvation is about grace and grace alone. Whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you're Asian, whether you're anything else. One group doesn't work their way in and the other group gets in by race. There is one way to come in. It is through grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone. It is given to us as a gift. You know, this always brings up in my mind this story. When I was in high school, there was an event that wounded my mother so much that 35 years later, almost every time we get together, she brings it up. And that event was my high school baccalaureate. In my high school baccalaureate, you know, baccalaureates, that's where they give out all the scholarships, that's where they give all the awards. And so basically, you know, the, in the front row of the baccalaureate, there was the valedictorian, the salutatorian, you know, the, the jocks, whoever's getting big scholarships. And that took up about half the row. And then the other half of the row, they just started filling in students. Well, my name was A, Allen. I was the first one in my class, alphabetically, and so I was sitting right next to the valedictorian. His name was Rob. He was a great guy. We had all the same classes. The difference was he went, I didn't. (laughs) And so I'm sitting next to Rob, and baccalaureate begins, and, and the whole night was Rob C., scholarship to Stanford. And everyone clapped, and he would go up and get his scholarship and usually a trophy or something and bring it back. And he would sit there, and then they would say, and now National Merit Scholarships, Rob C. And he would have to get up, and he would look over, and he said, can you hold this? <laughs> and we're friends. I said, sure. And after about three or four times, you know, he'd come, and I'd give it back. He'd come, and I'd give it back. And about the third time, he got called again, and I just said, I said, why don't you just let me hold him? Like, I'll just hold him the whole time. You don't, you can, it'll just be easier. And so I'm sitting there, and during the course of the night, that thing just grew, 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 grew. My poor mother was just in the bleachers crying her eyes out. <laughs> Somehow she had the idea that I wasn't applying myself. <laughs> now what, imagine, if after that night, Rob turned to me and said, Tommy, you know what? Why don't we do this? How about I trade all of these? How about I give you all this stuff that I earned, and you give me all the, like, Things that you deserve. The school skipping, the bad grades. What would you think? If, he, if, he, if it genuinely, if you we were able to do that, you'd think, no one does that. No one is that gracious. No one is that good. No one would say, I earned all this stuff, you take it, and I'll take all your bad stuff. That's exactly what the gospel says. That's exactly what Jesus says. He says, Tommy, take all this good stuff that I have earned, all of the righteousness, all of the pleasure that the Father has in me, and I will take all of the badness that you have. I will take all the mistakes you have made. I will take all the sins you have committed, all of the time you have wasted, everything that is bad about you, give it to me, and I'll give you everything that's good. That's what grace is. And that's what you get in the gospel. 
And bigger than that, how do, how, where does that come from? Well, you see, Jesus does it for us, and where it happens, and this, this might cause more problem than preaching about racism, all of this happens because of the great tribulation. What do I mean by that? And why am I so nervous about talking about the great tribulation? Right? Anytime we post something about tribulation online, we will get comments. Right? Because people think, yo, the tribulation is going to happen and Christians are going to be whisked out of the world and suddenly, you know, then Jesus is going to come back after that and establish his rule. You know what? Okay, I'm going to give you my perspective. My Presbyterian, correct perspective. (laughs) When you read through the Bible, you never find tribulation with a capital T like we would have, like, like you would see in some study Bibles and some traditions, that the Bible is full of tribulation for Christians, that we are delivered through tribulation, not from tribulation. But if there was, it is the great tribulation. Notice what it says in verse 13 and 14. One of the elders says, address me, saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And John wisely says, I said to him, sir, you know. And he said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, what do I mean by the great capital T tribulation? If there is any great capital T tribulation in the Bible, it happened at the cross. If there's a place in the Bible where God pours out all of his wrath and all of his anger and all of his frustration at sin, it is at the cross of Jesus. And because of the cross of Jesus, all these, he says, all of these from every people, tongue, tribe, and nation, they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They have come through that great tribulation, and instead of bearing it themselves, Jesus, God the Son, bore it for them, and because of that, now their garments are as white as snow. They are pure in his sight. That's the power of the gospel, because Jesus bears the capital T tribulation for us. Now, it leads us to the last thing. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation are cleansed, and practically speaking, what that's going to mean in the course of the next 14 or 15 weeks is what I'm going to call an eschatological challenge. Now, what do I mean when I say we have an eschatological challenge? Well, first of all, you got to know what eschatology is. Eschatology basically is the study of end times, or, or it's the experience of end times. And so when you look at the Bible, um, eschatology, the end times, actually started to be realized when Jesus arrived. That that's when the end times started. It's not, we're not looking out and people are like, oh, we have a pandemic, this must be the end times now. You know what, wearing a mask, worse things have happened in history than you having to wear a mask at church, I'll be honest with you. And worse things will happen. That's not what I'm talking about. Like, so for example, if you, if you think about John chapter 3, remember a very famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or Jesus said that, and that eternal life there is Ione Zoe, that means life of the age to come. And what Jesus was saying is that whoever believes in the son will start having eternal life, the life of the age to come now. In other words, the thing, the thing that was way in the future has been sucked into the present. And so your eschatology is realized in, in your life. Not completely, not, not 100%, but you start to experience that. Remember he said to the woman at the well, he said, everyone who drinks the wa- this water that he offered 
or in her well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Aone Zoe. Right now. So when your eschatology starts to be realized, that means the things that are happening in the future get pulled into the present. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all the things that are promised you will experience forever, you actually can start to experience them right now. Now, the eschatological challenge we have when you begin to talk about race is that oftentimes our eschatology can become overrealized. And what do I mean by overrealized eschatology? Well, your eschatology is overrealized when you think you have already arrived at some point. And so imagine this. Can you ever imagine a, a time in your life or a time in the church when someone would stand up and you say, you know what, guys? We don't need to talk about lust anymore. Like, we've conquered that sin. It's over. We don't need to talk about it anymore. Or we don't need to talk about greed anymore. We're just done. We're, I mean, we're done. America's not a greedy country anymore. We don't need to talk about that. Pick any particular sin and ask yourself, would you really say we don't need to talk about it anymore? Now, ask yourself this. Is racism a sin? Most people I'm thinking would say yes. And if racism is a sin, you can't just say, we're done talking about it. Like America's past it, Europe's, whoever's past it. I'm not saying that, that America's a racist country necessarily, but what I'm saying is, if it is a sin, it, it will always be here potentially, if not really. Which means we have to be willing to address it. We have to be willing to call it out. We have to be willing to talk about it. Because if you say, oh, we're not, we're, America's not racist, we don't need to deal with this anymore. As soon as you get someone who is racist in charge, then, then, then it's a problem again. So you can't just say, we don't need to talk about it. That's your, your eschatology is overrealized. The other problem, which I think a lot of American Christians have had, frankly, is our eschatology is underrealized. And when you say your eschatology is underrealized, what you're saying is that the cross didn't change anything. In other words, overrealized means Jesus, Jesus came and fixed everything. Underrealized means he came and fixed nothing. And you can't say that anyway, either. Why? Because the cross changed everything. The cross changed everything about the way we relate to each other as man and woman. It changed the way we relate to each other as Jew and Gentile, as black and white, whatever it is. And so that's what we'll be talking about for the remainder of our time here and finally, just remember, the cross change, it changed everything. The next 14 months, that's where we're going with this. And I would appreciate it if you would be praying for me and Samuel. I gave Samuel some really easy passages to preach about, like interracial marriage, um, things like that. It's because he has an interracial marriage, by the way. <laughs> so let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would... Um, as we head into this series in, with, with some sense of trepidation, I pray that you would also give us a sense of, of boldness and gospel power, um, that we would be different as a church for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen.